Mary Beth and I just visited Washington, D.C. And um, it's cool because, like, you get to see these things that represent, these monuments that, like, memorialize our nation's history, right? And it's like some of it seems really old. We saw the Declaration of Independence or one of the copies of that and Bill of Rights and Constitution and other things. And it's like, man, this stuff's been here, been around for so long, like 200 and whatever years. And so it's kind of cool and you feel the, the gravity of it and it seems really serious. But then as I'm like studying Matthew this well, last week or so, it's like, like this is not just the foundation of a country like 250 years ago like what we're going to read tonight in Matthew 16 is like some of the foundation of like of Christianity and of the church and of what we're a part of here and so like maybe they have this in in the in Israel or in certain places but like we would they would be memorializing things that we read about tonight like what Peter says that would be a quote like if, if we were looking at the monuments of what we read about tonight. Anyway, it's kind of, it's cool because it's like, wow, that's, that's even a lot more significant than our little young nation that we have. Um, so I'm excited to like just share, hey, this is some of the start of, of the church. And so um, we're going to look at Matthew 16. And so if somebody could just read the first four verses, one through four of Matthew 16, there's like kind of three sections in this make a few comments about each. Um, so somebody just read Matthew 16, 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy day, sorry, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Okay, so just so a few things in there are confusing. Like talking about the red sky and stuff. This is like we have a, you want a Bible? If somebody else comes in, if y'all can like slide some of those stools out or something. Okay. So, um, let me back up. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, their religious leaders, they're coming together to test Jesus. And the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't agree on a lot of things. And so for them to be like partnering together, it's, it's significant. Like they are coming against Jesus. And it says they come, they've come to test him. The, only, the last time Matthew used that word test to test Jesus was back in the temptations of Jesus when the devil was, was tempting Jesus. So like the Pharisees and Sadducees are coming after Jesus to test him. And it's, it, there's some, it seems like some malicious intent here. Um, 
And they're seeking a sign from Jesus again, which we already read about in chapter 12. Um, that seems to be the case with, like, even in 1 Corinthians, Paul says the Jews, uh, they want a sign. And Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. But these Pharisees and Sadducees are coming to Jesus again. Give us a sign, give us a sign. And it's like, like we said last time, he's given so many powerful signs and wonders already in his life from not only just his miraculous birth and upbringing and how that fulfills prophecy, but miracle after miracle after miracle. And they come to him seeking a sign. And in, um, in Mark's account of this, it says that when they asked for a sign, Jesus sighed deeply. Like, are you kidding? <laughs> like, um, you, you're still going for the same... You're still looking for a sign as if I haven't provided enough. And then Jesus goes on just to say, hey, you guys can predict the weather and kind of a common way that even, I think even today, um, there's this phrase, red, uh, red sky, red skies at night, a sailor's delight, red skies in the morning, sailors take a warning or something like that, right? And so you, he's saying, you guys can predict what the weather's going to be like based on what you see in the sky, but you can't predict the signs of the times, or you can't you're not able to understand these signs that, hey, Jesus is who he says he is. He is the prophesied Messiah. And so it, it's, I think it's understandable that Jesus sighs deeply. He's like, um, you know, are you kidding? And we, we talked about a couple, a few weeks ago, that the people, the Jewish people were expecting, they were wanting a type of Messiah that, that wasn't what Jesus was panning out to be. And um, we talked about how sometimes we have that same error and we have like little action figure Jesus and we like, sometimes we want Jesus to have this superpower that maybe he has, but we're missing out on these other things that Jesus says he is, or maybe we're even imposing something on Jesus that he actually has never promised to us. Like, oh, I like Jesus because he um, he's going to help me to accomplish all of my goals in life or something like that. And it's like, well, Jesus didn't really say it's all about your goals and you like reaching your, you know, your human potential and, and your career, whatever it is. And so we can impose things on Jesus, I think, like the Pharisees. But so, like, if I had to ask you guys this, what kind of signs, based on maybe some things you've heard, or if you were just guessing, what kind of signs, like, are, do the Pharisees and Sadducees want? Like, what would act, what would Jesus have to do in order for them to be like, okay, you're, we believe you're the Messiah, we're going to follow you. Like, what would what would he have to do? What do you guys think? Maybe stuff like Moses did. Stuff like Moses did. Okay, like to connect to, hey, this is Israel's religion and. I'm doing the same things, maybe, yeah. I mean, it seems like it seems like the things that Jesus have done has done already are just as miraculous, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I was gonna say. Like he, he kind of did a lot. Yeah, he already, like he that. has power over the the waves and the sea, just like parting the Red Sea, and mm -hmm. he raises people from the dead, which is probably harder even than turning us. Staff into a snake or everything. Other times, the Pharisees didn't see those things happen. Though. They mm. didn't see the waves and they didn't see. The yeah, they didn't see all of Yeah, but they did see a couple, right? They did see he he did heal a couple people right in front of them, <clears throat> and then they were pissed because it was on the Sabbath. Yeah, right. That's yeah. 
maybe they wanted him to be like rich and powerful and like do a miracle, like to be the Messiah they wanted him to be. Yeah. Or to kill the king, I don't know, or the pharaoh or whatever. Like. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Like I'm thinking that if he does, if if Jesus does some miraculous or big thing against Rome. Or that's just like pro-Judaism, or you know something that's real um, political. Um, maybe that, maybe that's what they're going. I mean, that's that seems to be the Messiah that they kind of are are dreaming of and hoping for. That, to their credit, I mean, eventually Jesus does play into that role in the future. But, but he's he's not right now adding up to what they want. And I don't know what I mean. Who knows what signs would have convinced them? Because even the sign of Jonah, which he doesn't explain here, he did last time, but is he's going to raise from the dead, and that's a significant sign. And who knows? I mean, I'm sure the Pharisees and Sadducees at least catch word of this and try to explore it, whatever. But um, well, the Pharisees and Sadducees are, I think, in asking for a sign, they're misunderstanding the identity of. Jesus, or the identity of the Messiah, and we believe they're one and the same, but um, they're 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 not understanding, or they're not willing to understand. Maybe a combination of both that that Jesus is the Messiah, and so they just have this in, incorrect understanding of him, and and probably implicitly they're teaching that to other people, like watch out for this guy, and they're eventually plotting against him, and so it's. Um, it, it's it's probably coming out of their mouths. So I, I wonder, like, if we if we wanted to obtain a correct understanding of Jesus and a proper knowledge of it, like how how are people actually? How are we actually? Maybe how are you actually convinced that Jesus is like who he says he is? That he's actually the the words that he says that he's. Um, and, and that Matthew is showing in this gospel that he's the son of God, that he's Abraham's heir, or uh, David's heir, and he's in the line of Abraham all the way back. Like, how, how do we actually believe this? For those of us that, that believe Jesus is the son of God, he's the promised Messiah, like, is it from the signs, from the miracles, is it from the prophecies, like, a combination of those things? I think yeah. I think so. I think I think if you look at like the like the prophecies in the Old Testament and like you'll you'll see throughout the New Testament Jesus fulfilling those things. But I think you have to like have the heart to be like willing to see that because I think like the evidence is there, but if it's not something that you're willing to accept you're not gonna see it. You know, it's just like yeah. when like and the marriage, if like a spouse is having an affair, there are signs there all along that can kind of like indicate that there's something mm-hmm. not right. But if you're not willing to like take the evidence for what it's worth, yeah. you'll be in denial about it. Mm-hmm. I would um, say no to whatever question you asked here about mm-hmm. what, you know, what for um, it wasn't this because I didn't know about this when I came to Christ. I learned about this after. So it was more of his faith. Someone can forgive me for my sins. Someone loves me. Someone says that this is who you say it is. That sounds good. I'm taking that for what it is in the moment. And then I learned about 
this part of his ministry and all the things that he did. Yeah. Um, so for me, I grew up in church. And I didn't even know about David Goliath. Half the crap. Half of the stories. Half the stories. No, that's good. It, yeah, and all of us. I mean, everybody's story would be drastically different. I'm sure, or not drastically different, but. Like every, there's certain convincing things and whatever that, that kind of lead us into this this knowledge and this belief in Jesus. But I would at least say this, and this is where I would just kind of want to in this section is just say it's it's not necessarily enough to see prophecies, or it's not necessarily enough to see a miracle, maybe even before your very eyes. That's that's not necessarily enough. If if God wants it to be enough to convince you, it will. But that's not it, it's not necessarily going to do the convincing. So if I if I go out and heal somebody and tell somebody it was done in the power of God, then my neighbor who saw it, they still may not believe, even if they see a miracle before their eyes. So, um, but that's part of the process um, for people. So, um, just by way of like the narrative of where this is going, Jesus has entered for just a second into kind of a Jewish area, Magadan. Magadan we see at the end of chapter 15, where Randy ended last week where the Pharisees and Sadducees approach Jesus. They're like, show us a sign, show us a sign. Jesus is like, you're still looking for a sign. And then he leaves and goes, and the rest of what we look at tonight is going to be in a Gentile area. So it's like he almost dips his toes into kind of the Jewish area of um, Galilee for a while. And now he's he's kind of headed up north to the Caesarea Philippi and some other areas that aren't so heavily Jewish. So, um, and... There's, uh, yeah, let, let's read on. So somebody read verses 5 through uh, 12, that next little section in chapter 16. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They, and they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread, but Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is that? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So there's, if you don't know what he's talking about with the loaves and the feedings, then like go back and read the last two chapters because that's it's just some miracles that he's just performed where he's provided food for masses of people virtually out of thin air um, now when I read this like I grew up kind of in the Christian church and like hearing these a, a lot of these stories regularly and I see the the disciples, and I think, do you, like, do you really not understand that when Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, do you really not understand that he's talking like something not physical, like, obvious, I think, well, obviously he's not talking about actual leaven, like yeast for bread, 
because I realize that sometimes Jesus says things that are he's he uses analogies or he speaks in parables or he's the uh, he's the bread of life and I realize well he's not he's not literally bread he's the, you know so I kind of get down on the disciples but I you have to cut the disciples a break because they're like this is this is not they didn't grow up in this culture I don't think they're just idiots and just can't under can't are having a hard time connecting that Jesus is talking about something not the physical bread. Um, but Jesus is saying, come on you guys, like I've showed you twice already with these miracles that like I can produce physical bread. Like that's not what I'm worried about. That's not what I'm thinking about right now. That's not what I meant when I said watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're just thinking we don't have any bread. Like what? And Jesus kind of helps them to see, don't you guys understand, the bread is not an issue, I can make food and provide however is needed, just like that, it's no problem. I want you guys to know something beyond that. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So then the disciples understand, oh he's not talking about bread actually, he's comparing that to the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So it's not like they're actually the Pharisees and Sadducees are handing out Leaven, and they need to watch out for that. But, but they're, you know, he's telling them watch out for for their teaching because teaching, like we talked about leaven a few weeks ago, it it, it spreads and it's you know it's it it's something that's far reaching and it doesn't just stop with um, the person that says it. So, um, I think we spend a lot. Of, this is a side note. I think we spend a lot of time concerned about lesser things like how is God going to provide and things that we we need not worry about. We've already read earlier in the book of Matthew, God can he provides for like birds and grass and like he can take care of little un, relatively unimportant pieces of nature so he, he can take care of us. Um, but I think we worry a lot about those things and sometimes we need to take a step back I think like Jesus is having the disciples do here and say hey there's like there's something more important about where our next meal is going to come from that I want you guys to um, be thinking through, and that's to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So I want to ask you guys, like, what, what specifically, what is that leavenous teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Like, what things specifically do you think Jesus is saying? Watch out for this, because the Pharisees and Sadducees, um, they, especially the Pharisees, they're teaching the a lot of the Old Testament, they certainly know the scriptures and the scribes, and so there's some truth to what they're teaching. It's not everything they say is far out there. But like, what what specifically might they be talking about um, that, that Jesus is saying, hey, watch out for that kind of teaching? Could it have been that when they had asked them for a sign, that they were kind of saying to the people, the Messiah has to fulfill our requirements on what he should be, how he should, how he should appear. And the teaching that they were going to watch out for was things that would, would, would say, well, you're not filling that Christ. You're not quite me measuring up to what we, we as the Pharisees think the Messiah should be like. Yeah. And he's telling them, don't, be, don't have that infiltrate your thoughts and make you doubt in who I am. Yeah. I, I think exactly. Like, at least that's, I think, the best we can tell from the context. The Pharisees are seeking a sign. In just a minute, we're going to see Peter 
verbally identifying Jesus accurately as the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God. And so I, I think it's reasonable to assume this teaching specifically, maybe it's in general the teaching of the Pharisees, but, but specifically it probably has to do with how, what the Pharisees view of who they expect Messiah to be and how they're, they're not receiving Jesus as that Messiah. So, so specifically, I think you're right, Randy, like, watch out for that. Um, for that kind of teaching, and where, like, where does that kind of teaching eventually lead the religious leaders? Like, what does it lead them to do? Crucify Jesus. Yeah, it, it puts the, the extent of that is it, it's understandable that Jesus says, "Hey, watch out for this teaching." Now, of course, Jesus knew that he was going to go to the cross, and it was all in God's sovereign plan. But um, so, I think just a, a summarizing phrase for this little section. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, but be aware of false teaching, in particular that, particularly the teaching that mis, um, misinterprets the identity of Jesus, or that misidentifies Jesus or Messiah, who is one and the same. I have a question. Yeah, yeah. So, I feel like I know this, but I'm not sure. Um, how does it how does it like relate? Like, they're asking for bread, and he's telling them, beware of teachings. Like, yeah. like, did the Pharisees, like, offer a lot of food at their teachings? <laughs> or, like, mm-hmm. what, did, like yeah. what is that? I mean, I think what Jesus is doing, which is what he often does, is he's just taking a, um, something that, in their culture, is very known to them. And right now, bread was on their mind because they just seen these miracles. Right. Um, or that's what Jesus had been using to teach. And so he's just taking whatever is familiar in their mind and he's using it to explain something else that he actually wants to say. Okay. So that's why he's, I think, why he talks like in farming uh, parables. Because right. that's what they know and that's what's familiar to them. Much Like he would use other things if he was living today and he'd just grab it. Maybe he'd talk about, he'd use an iPhone analogy or something. Right. You know, but I, I mean, I think, Randy, do you have any other thoughts on that? Like, what? I think sometimes it seems that Jesus is kind of a little bit vague and confusing. Mm-hmm. So it makes them go, what? Yeah. And then they begin to think about it and talk about it. Then it opens up the door for him to explain it. Yeah. He kind of does the whole thing backwards of, of analogizing. He throws the analogy in first, and then they go, well, I don't get what that's all about. Yeah. What's this level 11 of the Pharisees? And then he gives them a chance. He uses a teaching point to talk about the bread. And he says, okay, you're of their 11. Bread. The mind starts spinning. Yeah. And that's that's his method. It's kind of his method. It's more, it's more memorable that way, maybe. Um, okay, so the next section here where I want to kind of focus our um, most of our attention, we're going to talk, we're going to have discussion mostly around this. Um, starts in verse 13. I'll, I'll read this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, And others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon, Peter, replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, 
Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And the Christ is just, remember, like the Greek version of Hebrew Messiah. Um, so, the, Jesus is like, who do people say that I am? We already saw a couple chapters ago, Herod's like, I think he's John the Baptist resurrected. And maybe he's one of the prophets. They have all these different ideas of who he is. Because he's made a stir, right? Like people are hearing about him. He's not new on the scene. But then Jesus turns. I think this is a really important, <laughs> if there's, okay, there's not an unimportant part of the scriptures. But, um, but like, I think this is a, a really, really key thing. He turns to the disciples and he's, he asks them this question, who do you say that I am. And he's asking them like plural, not individually. Peter answers, but he's asking the disciples, who do you all say that I am? And so it's like a real like focused question. He's gone from the third person, who do people all oh, some people say this and this to who do you it's like Jesus wants to know what their thoughts are. And I think that this question, who do you say Jesus is, is like the critical question that we can ask in life or in our in our um, quest for truth and knowing God. I think a lot of it comes down to who you say that Jesus is. And if you're wrong, like if you would answer that question wrong, I think Jesus would say, well, beware of, of your teaching, like he's saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're misunderstanding who Jesus is as the Messiah. And so he says, beware of their teaching. So if, if when you're answering the question, who is Jesus, if it's not the correct answer, you, you, it's not just like, okay, that's no big deal, but we have to be aware of, of that answer, that teaching that can permeate. If you get the answer right, which Peter is going to do, at least partially, um, something really cool happens that I'm going to explain here in just a second. But I just I'll take a second just to say... This, because an understanding of who Jesus Christ is is so critical and, and, and so important, um, that's why, that's one of the reasons we get together on Wednesday nights and at other times to study the Bible. And that's why myself and whoever else teaches here like spend so much time studying and understanding because we want to, we've got to get these questions right, especially around the doctrine of who Jesus is. This is a this is almost, I don't know if this is the pinnacle of the book of Matthew, but this is a very significant part. When we end the teaching tonight and before a couple weeks from now when we pick back up, this is kind of a, the end of a section in Matthew. And from this point on, Jesus is going to start talking about the cross and his death and where he's going to have to go. But this is kind of like wrapping up a section that ends with this Jesus asking Peter, who do you say, or asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? And we want to make sure that we get this, this 
doctrine right, and these answers right. So Peter's answer comes in verse 16, we read, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The disciples have already, I think on the Sea of Galilee, believed Jesus, or at least verbalized him as the son of God. But this is the first time that anybody in the gospel is, is at least verbally confessing that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. Um, and he says, son of the living God. And just so you guys know, it's not like some abstract God that he's saying Jesus is the son of. Like there were other gods, Pan and Baal, that were worshipped in this area. But it's son of the living God, which like has this... Um, it, it, it's, it's like how the Hebrews would refer to God back hundreds of years earlier, the living God. So it brings this idea of this is the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh God that, that Israel has worshipped. And um, interestingly, as, as great of a statement as this is of Peter's, you're the, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God, it's not, Peter doesn't have a complete picture yet of who Christ is. And why would I say that? Like, what, what key pieces of information does he not even yet know about Jesus? Yeah, that Jesus is going to go to the cross. Like, at least in, in Matthew's account here, it's like, it's not till right after this that Jesus starts to teach them more about what his life here on earth is going to accomplish and his death on the cross. And so, um, it's, it's an incomplete understanding of Jesus, but it's, this is the most accurate and full statement that, that people, that the disciples have been made aware of thus far, anyway, in the gospel. And you could probably say that of all of us, like we, we don't understand Jesus and the Father and the Spirit entirely, like we're constantly learners of him, but, um, but there's, there's still this key piece of information, but um, what's important is what Jesus has revealed so far, Peter is agreeing with, and he's rightly understanding, unlike the Pharisees and what they had done. So then what happens next, I think, is, is so cool. Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answers him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, which is just, that was Peter's, like, given name. Bar means son of, Jonah means Jonah, or maybe John. So it's Simon, son of John. Okay. Sounds weird, but that's just his full name, so to speak. Um, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And it's interesting because it's, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, you are Simon, son of John. He's, it's kind of this neat exchange of words. And he says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Father, my Father, who is in heaven. So when I asked earlier, like, hey, where are we going to get a correct understanding of who... Jesus is. I think I asked that earlier. Um, Jesus kind of says here that it's it's not necessarily, like I said, going to come from miracles or fulfillment of prophecy or displays of power. The bottom line is God the Father reveals that truth to people. Jesus says, yes, Simon, you're right. Simon is Peter, same person. Yes, you're right, and you have received that understanding from the Father. It's not flesh and blood. It's not something that you've been smart enough to figure out. It's not, you know, it's not any of these material things or circumstances. It's literally God the Father has, has 
given you this, this understanding of who he is. Again, as opposed to the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees who are kind of coming up with their own version. And it's not the first time that Jesus has said something like this. In chapter 11, he says, you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you've revealed them to little children. And in the parables we saw in chapter 13, God gives understanding. It's not that you just get it automatically, but it's God's explanation of, of truth to where we understand. Or Paul says in Galatians, um, he says that God was pleased to reveal his son to me. So this revelation comes from God. And one thing I love about this, like there's a lot of people that I know that don't, um, that don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is in the Bible. And of course, like I would, I would want them to believe that because I understand that that's the truth and how it's affected my life. But um, the pressure is off of me, in a sense, to make somebody to believe, yes, this is who Jesus is accurately. Now, their understanding is going to come through people telling them, it's going to come through reading the scripture, or maybe it's going to come through a vision, but there's the work of the Father is to open people's eyes to this, and he's going to do that, so in a sense the pressure is off of me. Now we're going to see Peter is given a responsibility, and I think it affects us to where it's not like we can just say, well, God's going to have to reveal that to you, I'm never going to talk to anybody about him. But um, we'll kind of follow up with that in just a bit. Um, so he goes on to describe who Simon Peter is, and he says that, that Peter... Um, he says, you are Peter, which that word sounds like rock. Um, and so, and Jesus says, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, go with me here. There's, again, this kind of neat exchanging names that's going on. Jesus' name was Jesus son of God, or maybe some people thought son of Joseph, or whatever. But his his title, um, or who he was, was he was the son of God, and his role was tied up in this idea of Messiah. So Jesus is saying, okay, you're not just Simon, son of John. You are Peter, which means rock. So he's giving the Peter a, a significance to who he is by kind of renaming him or giving him a, a, a new identity. And and we're going to see in just a second, and he's also going to give Peter, he's going to talk about Peter's role in the kingdom of God or in the church. And so um, as Peter understands who Jesus is and what Jesus came to accomplish, and this is key, if there's anything you walk away with tonight, I hope it's this. As Peter's understanding who Jesus is, Jesus is giving Peter understanding of who Peter is and what Peter's role is. And the more it seems, even as you look throughout the life of Peter later on, the more Je uh, Peter's understanding of who Jesus is, that affects Peter's understanding of himself and what how he's called to live. Now, Peter's role... Um, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of scholarly, some exciting, some boring stuff written on these couple of verses here. Um, it's a little bit 
kind of cryptic, it seems to us, what exactly the key binding on Earth and loosing on Earth and what exactly all of these things mean. I'm going to give you kind of some summarizing statements. Um, but uh, Peter is something specifically is happening here with Peter. I'm trying to think how to just really clearly explain this. But Peter is also representative of disciples of Jesus. So Peter, or Simon specifically, is, is being now called Peter. And there's some unique things that Peter is going to be a part of that we, can't, that we shouldn't just think, well, that's, that applies to all of us. Um, just so you know, what the, what the Catholic Church has done is they've formed a lot of theology and tradition based out of this one verse. And this is where they say, here's kind of where the, Peter was kind of the first pope, and this was the authority that was given to him, and he's kind of determining some of who enters the kingdom and not, and they, they build a lot out of this one verse that, doesn't, that isn't in there. But there does seem to be some uniqueness to Peter, and um, part of that we see in other places, that Peter seems to be like first among the apostles. When, when we listed, or when Jesus, or Matthew listed the apostles back in chapter 10, I think, 10 or 11, it's as he goes on to list the 12, it says, first, Simon Peter, I think. And then it goes on to list the rest of them. And it's almost like there's some significance first to um, who Peter is. And um, there's also some significance to these, these first disciples. In Ephesians 2, we read that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Nobody else can set that foundation. It's already been done. Jesus is the cornerstone that verse talks about, but there's, there's this foundation that the apostles, including Peter, um, set for the, for, the, for the people of God, and they're the foundation. Now, we're a part of this structure, Ephesians talks about, um, but there's this, this specific role that the apostles and, and the prophets play in the, in the beginning of this. And also in Revelation 21, you see that there's there's something that in the heavenly city that says that the apostles of, are the foundation of that heavenly city. Randy can talk to you about that sometime because I'm not I don't know exactly what that means. But there's this unique role to the apostles, and he knows very clearly. Um, nice. So we see we see Peter's unique role as he goes through the book of Acts. If you've ever read Acts, like Peter is this significant character that is bringing the gospel first to the Samaritans. He's the first one to bring it to the household of Cornelius and the Gentiles. Like he's this key figure in the foundation of the church that is moving things forward. And um, so, so Jesus is saying to Peter, on, on you, Peter, in some sense, and based on your correct understanding of who I am, on, on this, Peter, is this is what I'm going to build my church on, on you and on your recognition of who Jesus is. So that's unique to Peter, but Peter is also representative of the disciples. So in verse 15, Jesus asked the disciples, he asked them, who do you, plural, who do you all say that I am? And Peter answers, but he's asking all of them. And the church, like we saw in Ephesians, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So, in some sense, Peter is unique, and in another sense, he's representative of other believers. We'll talk in about five minutes of like where 
where do we fall in? Like, does Peter actually represent what we do and who we are? Um, just a couple more uh, brief things here. In verse 18, this is the first mention of church in the book of Matthew, and it's, it's, the only, it's only one of two times that church, that word, is actually used in any of the Gospels. Um, it's used twice in Matthew, or three times maybe. Um, and that word ecclesia just means an assembly or a gathering of people. And actually, it was used, you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and, um, but there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Sorry if I'm geeking you out. But they would actually, the, assim- the Old Testament assembly of Israel, they would use the same word for that, ecclesia, um, this, this gathering or this assembly of people. And so interestingly, Jesus is now saying, I will build my assembly or my church on, on Peter and his confession of faith. And there's an emphasis on my, if you look at the original language that I don't quite understand. But So Jesus is, is saying something very significant here. And these, these are, he's forming a new assembly of people. Um, what I, one thing I love about this, and um, I don't know if you guys are encouraged by this, but how cool is this that the church can't be stopped? And Jesus isn't talking about the local church. Like local churches, we might not exist as NoHo Church in 20 years. I don't know, like our, our actual assembly of people. Maybe we will, maybe we will. But we're talking like the church, God's, God's New Testament people, have existed since this time and will exist to the end of time. And there's nothing that it says the gates of Hades or this domain of death can do, which I think is contract or is fitting with what Peter said. You're the son of the living God, Jesus. And Jesus says, yep, and the, these gates of death won't prevail against a living God. And I'm just super encouraged by that. One commentator said the gates of Hades, they represent the imprisoning power of death. Death will not be able to imprison and hold the church of the living God. So there's this kind of um, it's a a certain um, what's the word when you can't die? Um, Immortality of of the church kind of. I, I don't know. The church doesn't well it don't repeat the immortality of the church. I'm theologically screwed up on that. But, um, but the church will always go on, and I, I just think that's cool. Again, the pressure is off of us. We don't have to make that happen. This is something that Jesus promises. Last thing, um, the key, this difficult verse 19, the key, it seems, is a, it's a symbol of authority. Jesus is like, Peter, I'm going to give you the key to... Uh, the kingdom of heaven, I think he says. And that key is what a master, like somebody who owns a house or mansion, would give a steward or a house manager. He'd give them the keys to watch over the house. And he's referring probably back to Isaiah 22. There's a, a similar passage here that, that, that Jesus is probably using to spark some things in their mind. But um, all this to say there's this, there's this key or this authority this authority or this entrance that it's not like Jesus is giving Peter the keys to a car like Peter's going to own the car. He's giving, these are the keys 
to my house or to my kingdom of heaven. You don't own it, but you now have a role in, in sharing that key or that knowledge. So I think what that key is, if you look at Luke 11, 52, um, it kind of gives some light to it, but key is, the key is just, it's this knowledge from the Father, and it's a proper understanding, like we've been talking about, it's a proper understanding of who Jesus is, and it's, it's that understanding, that full understanding that unlocks the kingdom, so to speak. And so it's like he's saying, Peter, your actions, your spreading the gospel is going to be what opens the kingdom of heaven. It's what grant you have the key that grants access into the kingdom of heaven. And um, or if people reject it, it locks them out. They 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 don't have access to it. So it, it puts this key like puts people at a crossroads. Am I going to enter or am I not? And he's saying. Peter, you, I think, uniquely have this key as he's kind of some of the foundation of the church, but also he's, I would say it translates to us, which we'll talk about in a minute. But And this happens in the book of Acts. Peter starts, and the others start preaching, and people receive that message, some of them, and they will enter the kingdom of heaven, and others reject it who won't. And so the whole, like, uh, verse 19, that's difficult to understand, I just wrote a couple sentences trying to summarize, and I'll just read this. Um, so I don't ramble on about it. Um, there is power and authority and the knowledge of who Christ is, so much so that when I proclaim it, when I proclaim the key to the kingdom of heaven, I'm virtually letting somebody in or locking them out of heaven based on their response. Now, it's difficult um, to understand this because in the, in the Greek, there's some verb usage called future perfect passive verbs that are like, we don't have a really good way to translate this into English. Um, and when we read it kind of in most of our English translation, it, it sounds like Jesus is giving Peter like the ability to decide whether people should kind of enter, go to heaven or go to hell. And it's not like Peter's making this determinative, determinative choice that yes, you could. But basically that Peter is taking care of the master's house and the authority that he's been given. So it's like Jesus is saying, here are the keys that let people in and out of the kingdom or, or keep them out, let them in or keep them out of the kingdom. It's this proper knowledge and faith in who I am. Now, your role, Peter, you've understood who I am as Messiah. My role, your role is to now go offer admittance and whoever receives it, you let in and whoever does not, um, will be locked out, so to speak. So Peter has this unique role. He's not deciding. It's actually maybe a better translation is um, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. But it's, again, just awkward in English and it's hard for us to translate. But Peter is given, bottom line, this unique role, but he's also been given this representative role. And Jesus uses this same language about binding and loosing to all of the disciples um, a couple chapters later in chapter 18. So it's not, again, I think contrary to Catholic doctrine, it's not like Peter is that extra special that he gets to make those decisions, but he's in a sense representing all who follow Jesus. And then it ends with verse uh, twenty where Jesus tells his disciples not to tell that he's the Messiah. The time is going to come very soon um, that, in fact, in the next verses, that 
Peter and the disciples are going to have a more complete knowledge and their world's going to get rocked with the fact that Jesus is going to die. Um, but this kind of finishes this section of the book. And, and, and this is, again, the, the bulk of the recorded words and deeds of Jesus now have occurred. And now we kind of enter into the last segment of Jesus' time on this earth. So, so far it seems like Matthew has just established, dang it, Mary Beth. I was trying to be more brief on that introductory section. She said, 30 minutes? She knew it was going to be 45. Um, I know you. Matthew has, he's set up so far in the book very much that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And now we're going to start seeing, remember he's writing to Jews primarily. Now he's going to start setting up even more of what that entails and what Jesus is going to accomplish on this visit to Earth, his first incarnation. So um, I want to take the rest of the time, which is, will just be about 10 or 15 minutes, to, um, to reflect a little bit. And first of all, I just want to ask you all if you have any, based on what we've read and some of the things I've explained, if you have any conflict or any um, any confusion just on what is this saying, or if maybe you just have the gist of it, you feel like you have a good grasp. But if you have questions, or maybe you just want to share something that you have some clarity on now, like oh wow, I didn't realize this before, and so it was, it was new to me or helpful to me to know this. Or lastly, something that you're just challenged by. You think, man, this might relate to me in this way, and I want to live. So. Something you're confused about, something you have clarity about, or something that you're challenged by? Anyone? Something I'm challenged by. Um, just the, the last part that you talked about, just um, in light of the Pope being in the U.S., <laughs> it, it does not ever cross your mind that Peter didn't stand up and say, I don't want to be first pope or theme as the first ever pope or like worshipped not necessarily more than Jesus but become a Pharisee essentially um, and it's just like as you go to the Vatican it's like they are glorified more than Christ in many aspects and so like I just always think about that I remember walking through like St. Paul like this is beautiful Paul would not like this but you know yeah. but I just I always crossed my mind like with Peter have protested against what they took oh, this I, yeah, I see what you're saying. to say. Yeah, I, I would sure think so. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know a lot about a, a lot of Catholic theology, but it, but the role, like with this verse and the role that, that the Pope has and the authority of, of what comes out of his mouth is, it, it's, it's, somehow extracted from verses like this and it's um, frankly it's just not correct I mean it doesn't make any sense I don't know how you can quite get there but um, but yeah I, I, I totally think Peter would be like what have you done with, with what the beautiful role that God's given him yeah I what I was just going to say is beautiful like because I I never understood this passage until now as well and I and I, it's it's so much better than what they they you know they, they take things and make it 
like, oh, this means this, this means this, and the real message is always more beautiful and more profound, I think. I'm challenged by the question that you asked as to, like, like why do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Or like, how, how do we know that? Um, because sometimes I get so, uh, like, just like enveloped in my faith that I sometimes forget why like I don't I like sometimes I don't ask myself that deep question because just because I have faith you know but but I feel my heart more recently being like I want other people to know Jesus and that was something where in the beginning was like well I just want to focus on like me and Jesus you know where now I'm like I want everyone to know Jesus and, yeah. and it's really hard to to introduce Jesus to somebody when you're not asking yourselves those deep questions, because they're going to ask you, like, well, how do you know? Or, like, why yeah. do you believe that? And yeah. if you're not asking yourself those questions and, like, really, like, searching for it, then how can you tell someone? Yeah. So I'm challenged by that because it makes me, like, really want to think through those things so yeah. that I can tell other people. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> For me, I think it kind of goes along with what Kim is saying. Like you mentioned, like, that as Peter starts to understand more of who Jesus is, that he comes to better understanding of who he is. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, as we, like, search for, like, why we believe and, like, try to, try to figure out who Jesus is, it gives us, like, a greater clarity of, like, our purpose and, like, why we believe that. So I, I think mm-hmm. that, like, those things, yeah, it's really good insight. Or even like what we're called to, like because once Peter, once Jesus dies and is resurrected, and there's other things that happen, the Holy Spirit comes. There's like, like this is expanding Peter's understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, mm-hmm. and like his with each of these steps, his life is it changes drastically, and he, I think, with even some of that final information at the end of Jesus' life, his death and resurrection, like. Now he's understanding this, his role even more. Like Kim was like, he he has to get this out. This is important news for the world to hear. And yeah, and I, I think you guys think it's the same. Like as as I as I understand more and more, really about the the glory of, of Jesus and how how wonderful and perfect and mighty and everything that I've learned and have my mind expanded to about who God is. It's like my view of myself and my place and my role just is is also expanded. And generally it's like, wow, God is so great. Wow, I'm not so great. Um, that's why we need Jesus because he's so great and, you know, we're desperate for salvation that we can't provide in our own. So it's like this, this I have a lower view of, of who I am, but thanks be to God, he's provided Jesus that now I'm, one of his children, and I can live in the goodness that he's created me to live in, like have access to the kingdom of heaven. But yeah, it's so, have anybody else experienced, like in a way, man, this is, I had a growing understanding of God, and so this is how it, um, then here's what I learned about myself because of it. Yeah, like I think all the time, you know, especially here where people want to be like, you're such a good person, or you're such good, you know, and it's like, 
man, if you saw it to my heart and my thoughts, you would be so disappointed because it's just so like <laughs> not, really yeah, it's very possible. Um, and it just is. And my actions and things I say and that, that I can be the Pharisee, that I can be the great sinner, that all these things. And it's, it's hard because we live in a culture that's like, you can be great and you can do these things. And the truth is, like, relative to God and the holiness of God, like, no, I, I'm pathetic. Like... Um, and that's okay. Like, I'm okay with that because it gives me realistic expectations. One of just, yeah, like, I'm flesh and human, and I need grace. And I want to give grace because I need it, and only God can give that. And, um, and that even in my nastiness of sin, God loves me and pursues me in that, even in His perfection. And so it's so um, opposite of what our culture says, but yet there's so much more freedom than to, to point to Jesus and the work Jesus is doing in us versus I'm just trying to be a better person. Um, because every time I try to be a better person, I just fail. And um, you guys know that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So it's like, oh, what good news. Like, it's, it's good that the more I understand Jesus, I understand who I am, and I realize my great need for Jesus. That um, I don't have to be God, and I just get to point people to who God is. This might be like an incorrect application of what you're saying. But, or maybe it's just peripheral. But um, I like on the we find out more like who we are when we understand who God is more and who Jesus is more. I think I would I'm I'm I it more like very specifically to like I'm thinking like like because um, so much of like I think there's just always like when pursuing music or like my like my favorite thing about being a Christian um, is that I have purpose and I'm always trying to figure out like what my role is what my purpose is like what does God really want me to be doing? Like, who, if, if I was completely who God created me to be, what would I look like? You know, mm -hmm. things like that. And so I think, and, and like in music, I think I was, I was talking to you about it before, but like how I, how I, um, how I, there's like a, such a calling in this world to be obsessed with, with becoming like what your dream is to be. So if you want to be an actress, like that should be everything to you. Otherwise you don't, like there's, why are you pursuing it? And like trying to like view that in a godly way, like okay, you know, Christ is like the most important thing. And and so I was like just thinking about that, like so the deeper I pursue Christ and the more I get to know who He is, and like the more clarity will become will come like for the rest of my life and like what I'm supposed to do and what it looks like to pursue that or what it looks like not to or you know things like that. So I think I don't know. I think that's pretty applicable to like the people in this this. But because I mean, I think there's just so much like the be, the be who you truly are, and people will accept you. And there's so much like I think honestly, there's just like such a like a a wandering and a wandering of identity for people. And like people my age, I just see it so much. Like they just want to figure out who they are, 
and I think it's just so interesting. It's just such an opposite like way of thinking. Like find out who you are, but it's like to find out who you are in, in you find out who you are in Christ more. So yeah. like by getting to know someone else, you get to know who you are more. Absolutely. And as you with your generation as they're seeking to find out who they are, as you get older you change in your seasons of life. Mm -hmm. And you go through the, if you're not seeking Christ, which you know, now that I'm over here, it's a constant who am I? Mm -hmm. What is my purpose? What and he reveals it the more you seek him. Yeah. But when you seek it on your own and just if you figure out who you are at 20, then at 30, then at 40. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't ever, it's always seeking Christ. Yeah. Mary Beth and I were just having a conversation with somebody a couple days ago, um, and he was, he's not a Christian, and he's, he was trying to figure out what the right thing in his life was to do, because a friend of his had said, oh, um, what you're what you've done is wrong, and he's like, I really don't think what I've done is wrong, but they're telling me I'm wrong, so he's having this identity crisis, and what is my, what am I supposed to do? And it's really difficult, because, like we were saying, like, we're able to gauge what's right and wrong, and what makes, what makes us know if we're doing the right thing or not, based on what Jesus has said, and based on the character of Jesus, and what his word tells us, and so to be able to, like, for somebody that isn't that doesn't believe Christ, it's like, well, how do you, maybe your friend's right, maybe you're right, like, who really knows? We don't have any, any, any standard to go by where Jesus just gives, again, if we can understand who he is, like, we understand what we're called to, and we can look in his word, and, oh, it's clear, I mean, this is making it sound easier than it is, but it's clear what we're supposed to be about, and what our character is supposed to be like, and, um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's what he's doing with Peter, I think that's exactly what's happening with this passage. It's the clearest confession of who Jesus is and most accurate to this time. And Jesus very, like, immediately is saying, okay, and he immediately gives out Peter this understanding of who Peter is and what his, his role is to be. Speaking of that role, just maybe a last question. Um, I said Peter's role is unique. Some of his foundational role in the church is unique, but it's also representative. And I would say, is it is what Jesus calls Peter to, is that, like, would Jesus call us to the same thing? So if he's saying, Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and this is something that, this, this knowledge that you will communicate, this gospel of the kingdom, is something that grants entrance into his kingdom or not. Um, does that sound like it is a similar role to what we would have? It's kind of a silly question as I'm saying it. It's yeah. like, yeah, it's, it's the same exact thing. And... So in a way, we should yeah. all be the We should all be the Pope. We are all priests. Well, yeah. Um, it's like, if you went back to that, that Ephesians passage, um, it had said... Uh, about the apostles being the foundation, the apostles and the prophets. Yeah, Ephesians. I'll have to look it up in my Bible. Um, um, okay, here it is. So, you speaking just to the 
church in Ephesus, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, okay? And that household is built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, including Peter and these other guys Jesus was talking to in what we just read. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, don't forget that, Peter's not the cornerstone, nobody is except Jesus, in whom the whole structure in Jesus, the cornerstone, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now listen, he tells this church years later, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And our, as, as the temple of God is God's dwelling place, our cornerstone is still Jesus I mean, you could say some of our foundations of church is still the apostles and prophets and, and his word. And, and we're a part of this same building. So yes, our role is carrying on the same thing that Jesus has called Peter to. It's carrying on the same role, that, or a similar role to what Jesus had called the disciples to in chapter 10. He's going to call them to at the end of this book. But this, this work continues on. And I love that, again, to just kind of end with, this is a work that God is doing. Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus says, people are going to correctly understand who I am because the Father gives them that knowledge. So it's not us that's moving this thing forward. Don't like, we as a little like local expression of, of God's church, it's, it's not going to be us that are like, that are moving, that are granting entrance into the kingdom of heaven or that are, it, it's, it's, we are, we are a part of God's task, and we've been given these keys that we are to share with people, but it's God that's at work. It's God that's going to bring people to himself. It's God that's going to cause these seeds to grow and, and turn into a beautiful plant that, that worships Jesus. And so um, the, the pressure is off of us, but we have a responsibility, and I guess is a, maybe a simpler way to say it. Um, and I love what... Uh, um, 1 Corinthians 4 1 says this. I'll just end here and then I want to give you one homework assignment. 1 Corinthians 4 1 says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. And that stewards is the same thing that like this key alludes to. It's, it's the key. We we are steward. We're managers of God's house. We are to steward what he has given to us including the truth that he's given to us and we are stewards of the mysteries of God and what, what God the Father has revealed to us and what we've seen confirmed by the prophets and what we've seen confirmed in the realities and the miracles that happen in our own lives um, we it is our responsibility now as our role as we understand who Jesus is now he tells us well, okay, here's what your role in this is now you're a steward of this of this truth and our role now is to be um, sowers of that seed so